start young, start now, buy things as early as you possibly can and think really big. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with our guest today, Sam Silverman. Sam is joining us from Tampa, Florida. He is the vice president of sales at a tech company and has three years of real estate experience. In that short time, Sam has done 12 syndications with over 2,500 units and has also acquired self-storage. Sam, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Good. Ash, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Sam, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, so background right out of college, got into software sales accidentally, quickly worked my way up, and in doing so in sales and have some success, the Commission checks quickly follow and sort of figuring out, hey, what do I do with this? So like many others, got into single family right away, built up to eight single family houses, realized it was something I do not want to be a part of in terms of scale, in terms of the mind share it took up. So quickly did a lot of research, understood that hands-off investing was the approach that made most sense for me. So looked into multifamily syndication, kind of since then has scaled up to 14 active deals right now, and, and also two on the GP side. So really working on the side of investor relations, capital, and, and helping support deals in that sense. Sam, take me through the transition of single family to your first syndication. So I actually bought my first single family while I was still in college. It was a condo right in the area and got super aggressive, put it on a 15-year loan, virtually no cash flow. I'm like, hey, I will buy a bunch of these properties put them on 15-year loans, pay them off at 36 years old, I'll be done. And I realized quickly that one, that's way too long. And two, it just wasn't overly scalable. So in terms of scaling up, kept buying more before that realization, got up to eight, five to the second one on roof stock and found the builder and owner of the property and bought a lot more places from him actually. Realized quickly that they cash flow two, three, four hundred dollars a month. The tenant leaves and your cash over the entire year is then gone when looking at turning the unit. And also just realize I don't want calls from tenants. I don't want to go collect late rent payments. It was just something that didn't make sense for me. And then what was your first syndication and how did that come about? Actually from listening to Michael Bonk's podcast, where if you look at what I do for a living, I interview and hire, train, salespeople. So the big thing that I've learned is, is how to interview, where listen to Michael Bonk's podcast, everyone goes in there to plug their own brand, to talk about what they're doing. I find people who I enjoy their conversation, listen to what they did. I reach out to them directly. They interview them, right? Of like, how do you handle a deal? How do you handle when things go poorly? What do you give up to go do it? And eventually find a few people that I like and started placing minimum investment across a variety of deals to get started. So you were the passive investor at first? 
Correct. Actually got into 12 passive deals in the last year and a half. And then do you run any syndications yourself? Currently, I'm actually in two live syndications. Actually, one's technically a joint venture, a little bit smaller deal. My role in those deals has been primarily on the capital raising and investor relations side of the house. Okay. So 12 passive deals that you've invested in, what is it specifically that you look for? Give us your top three criteria on how to qualify passive investments. I don't think you qualify the investment. All the deals you'll see, the returns are negligible. You're seeing there from 14 to 17, 18%, maybe a 20 in there, less now so, but it's more so you've been on the people all day long of who you're giving your capital to. If you're looking at a deal and seeing a 15 versus 16, and you go to 16 blindly, that is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. I think betting on the people is really important. A few big things I look for is one, what did this person go do previously that they're giving up to go do this now, right? Were you flipping houses and making 50 grand a year and now you're running a big business, right? Or now you're kind of looking at nothing wrong with flipping houses and making 50 grand a year, but I want us to give them something a lot more to go do this. They sacrifice something to go do this, that they have deep enough roots where this has to work out in a way that makes sense. Second, I want to see that the structures of the deal align in a way that the general partner or sponsor makes their upside by delivering the big way for the investors. I don't want to see a 5% acquisition fee. I don't want to see all these fees tacked on. I understand there's keeping the lights on, but there's also, it needs to be aligned with the bulk of the dollars the general partner or sponsor will make are for delivering for the investors and sharing the upside of that. And then third, how do they communicate? What's the transparency level? How do they go about handling poor situations? Something I'll ask everyone is help me understand when things hit the fan, walking through a situation where that happened to you and how you handled it. Because in these, even if it's a successful five-year deal, something will go wrong. Something never leads exactly to the pro forma, never leads exactly to how you picture it out. But what you want to see is just someone who will handle a bad situation in a good way and be super transparent the entire time. Being someone who goes from communicating weekly or monthly to going silent is not a good sign. You like things that are hands-off, but you still like knowing that you're in good hands. Those are three great pieces of advice. I love that. Do you have an example of a syndicator and their story of sacrifice where their back's against the wall and they cannot fail? I think I can frame it differently as to what they gave up to go do this. So someone I've met personally a few times, they actually had a similar background to myself, right? Working in software companies, building large teams and living out in California. I know what that role makes. They're half million dollar plus employee with equity in the company and family, kids. So that when I see that, of, hey, they left this very good career to go do this. That hits home me in a big way because one, I know the operational background is there. I know the systems and process and handling people are there. And also I know that they have a family to support, live in an expensive area, and they have to do things a certain way to grow their business in a sustainable way. Also, a big thing, too, that I didn't mention is what's their view on the long term? Because you don't want someone who views the super short, get-rich-quick way, and you want a longer-term partnership with them. So that they have mutually aligned interests down the road as well. I want to touch on that. When you say longer term, is there a limit on how many years you want an exit from this investment? Most deals that I've invested in are either a five or a seven-year hold. 
all of the deals that are seven year hold will have a built in refinance, which gives some diversification. So we'll typically see a five year hold in all the deals I personally invest in for deals that have no refinance, right? The goal is to purchase, add value, capture the delta between current and market rents and any operational efficiencies, reposition the asset and then sell it at a much higher price because the NOI out of income has been driven up. The deals that I've looked at are seven years and very few of them are, there's a refi built in in year two or year three. So as the investor, say you invest hundred grand, you may get back 50, 60, 70 grand within two or three years, allowing your velocity of money to keep moving. You can repurpose those dollars back into a new deal. So I think personally, my limit's about five years, understanding if anything happens to the market, that it's in a position where if it goes past five years, it's still an okay position, but more so giving flexibility and, and velocity of money. Because one of the big ways I view this is that when you can go reinvest that capital that you've received back with the added upside in the deal, your cash flow grows in a really big way, kind of like the snowball effect. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. I agree with you. I've seen a lot of investment deals that are 10 years, and it's so hard to predict what's going to happen in five, let alone 10. Yeah. So yeah, great points there. Would you invest in somebody who doesn't have a track record, but meets all of the other qualifications? Great communicator, great structure. They've sacrificed their career and they're all in. Or is the track record pivotal to you investing? Right now, personally, I'm only really going with people who do have a track record for the reason that there's a lot of operators looking for capital right now, especially with how deals are being structured today. So given the option in terms of a scarcity type scenario, I don't have to go do that today. But I think I'd be willing to go do that in the right scenario for someone who's starting out but at a much smaller amount than I may give someone else who has a more experienced track record, the goal of building up and growing with them. Yeah, I agree with you there as well. Sam, in terms of your capital raising, what have you learned from your passive investment experience to help you raise capital? I think a really big thing that I've learned is that communication is a really, really important thing. You learn quickly how you want to be communicated to. I've almost viewed passive investing as a very highly paid educational course for what I want to go do. That's someone's paying you 16, 18% to go get a crash course on what you're doing. Not so bad, right? You kind of get to see, hey, this is how these four fellow operators I messaged with have done this. This is what I've liked. This is what I didn't like. This is how it structured a deal that felt good to me or felt uncomfortable to me. I think a really big thing is that investors want to see is simple. 
simple is good, especially when talking about finances with someone. Something I've realized as well is just that when you talk about money with people, it can be an uncomfortable topic. You learn a lot about how someone grew up. They grew up from a very conservative family. Are they new money? Are they old money? But you learn a lot about how to interact with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds where they all may be in the same place today, but how they've gotten there can be extremely, extremely different. And that's interesting. So you tailor your approach based on their upbringing, their financial history. Yeah. So if you think about it, say you have Joe and Pete, right? And Joe has a background of family, multiple eight-figure net worth, where for them, he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. It doesn't mean he won't do anything else bigger today, but he's used to the lifestyle that he had. Whereas you look at Pete, who may have grown up with, say, a family who just immigrated here, right? And they started from scratch. And he saw what it was like to be on the entire other end of the spectrum, having to fight and claw his way up to get to where he is today, the luck could be far more conservative because they feel as though if things go south, they can lose that. They can lose it all. Whereas Joe may have been used to having everything his entire life and always feels that the downside isn't really downside, right? He's never experienced downside. People have experienced that contrast in quality of life and economic status are always more cautious to what can happen to them, what can happen to their money. But the Pete's of the world, if you deliver for Pete, they are loyal through and through. So I think it's interesting just having conversations, both those kind of people. And there's many, many more different kind of investor profiles or personas you can interact with. But I kind of frame it as old money and new money are, are the two primary buckets of people as to how they got there today. I love that perspective. Sam, when you interview potential syndicators, what are some of the hard questions that you ask them? I think the one is walk me through a time that things didn't go your way and how you'd handle it. Just because you look at this deal, this deal is not going to pan out exactly how you expect it to. Walk me through what can go wrong here. Walk me through why someone would say no to this investment. Walk me through the downsides. And walk me through your assumptions. Are you using assumptions? Because we all know from looking at an Excel sheet, you can make numbers look however you want to make them look. And most people won't catch it. So it's kind of walking through all of your underwriting in a deal and why. Being super conservative to a point. There's over conservative where you won't find any deals. There's also overly conservative where you're fluffing things in a way just to be appealing to the investor. So understanding how they got to where their assumptions are today is really important. And also what they plan on doing to actually hit those assumptions, right? What's their whole business plan? Not just saying, hey, we're going to throw granite on the countertops and put in some new black coin fixtures. Like walking through who's doing it. What's the relationship? What's the track record and liability of the contractors, property management, all of those areas that people may not dig into as much. I think it's really important in those relationships there. I see a how-to book in your future, or at least both guide syndicators as well as new investors. And speaking of which, what would your advice be to somebody who's becoming a new syndicator? Be super transparent and don't tell us when you have all the answers if you don't. I think growing up in sales, when you get questions, even live questions, right? And being from a boardroom or a group of executives and you don't know the answer, tell them. Don't tell you something that's not true. These people will call you out on it all day long. And I'd rather tell you, hey, Ash, that's a great question. I'll go figure it out. Versus, hey, Ash, it's this when it's really that. If I did that to you, there's no reason you ever give me money ever again. I think the honesty and transparency piece, and they don't expect to know everything. 
you look at becoming a novice to being decent in something, the barrier is not very high. Being decent, being an expert is really high. So they don't expect you to always be an expert in that area. They expect you to be on the path of getting there and putting the effort in to get a hell of a lot closer. So don't fake it till you make it. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Sam, are you in the multifamily only space or do you invest in other types of asset classes in your syndications? Passively, I've also invested in three self-storage deals. Longer term, the way I view it is I'd like to have multifamily being 70, 80% of my personal portfolio and also deals that I can bring to investors as well. So I like being diversified. So personally, I have holdings in Florida, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho. Being diversified both within deals in terms of classes of assets. So call it a class A versus a class B. Also types of assets, right? So looking at kind of secondary assets such as mobile home parks or self-storage complexes as a way of diversification. So personally, I have $0 in the stock market where all of it's just spread out between different assets. So I like the self-storage play a lot. Somebody with your background who has a sales interviewing background, what's the benefit of helping other people raise capital? How is that beneficial to you? It's beneficial to having both parties in the sense of I'm a very big believer on go very, very deep in one area. I'd rather be a master of one thing than a jack of all trades and master of none. So if you look at it in the sense of, if I can go partner with operators who have a very good core function, whether it's finding deals, operating a deal, underwriting, running the finances and back office of it, running the construction and property management, but having people who are very specified and deep in one area allows everyone to move a lot quicker. And then are you on the GP side once you are a capital raiser? We've actually looked at a few models. One is the GP side. It's actually involved in other areas. As we all know, you can't go legally raise capital for commissions. So in certain deals involved in other areas outside of that, whether it be investor relations, asset management, due diligence, et cetera. We've also looked at the fund-to-fund model, where you're building a personal fund to go invest into a larger deal with that deal identified ahead of time. The goal of being entirely SEC compliant when looking at raising capital and working with multiple operators versus being a core part of that team. I want to go back to interviewing syndicators. Let's say you are the actual syndicator. What would the ideal structure be that's fair for both investors as well as the operator? In the perfect world, it's just across the board fair. What do those numbers look like? I think you all at Ashcroft actually nail it. So typically it's seven and 70. So 7% preferred return, basically structured as non-guaranteed debt on your capital for the use of your capital. Then once that capital is then returned, 70-30 split or a split of some kind from the investor at 70% and the syndicator at 30%. I think it's also really a good structure for the reason that the syndicators are then compensated for delivering past the initial waterfall to the investor. I think it's always really important that it's aligned in the sense where if the syndicator does right for the investors, they get the benefit as well. If they don't, they don't. They should make the bulk of their earnings from financing fees. It should really just be around operating the deal well and exiting profitably for the investors. Anything along those structures, you know, I've also seen no preferred return and a higher split to the investor, which I think is also really important to syndicators as well, is that as a syndicator, the bulk of your dollars are made upon the exit of the deal, where if it's someone newer who is actually living off this capital and going full-time, maybe a 25, 75, no preferred return can make sense. 
so that the syndicators can have some cash along the way as well to allow themselves to keep going and growing. So as long as the investors make the bulk of it, the structure can really be dependent on the deal itself. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. What are some examples of really high fees that you've seen? There's someone who goes out and sets the record prices for purchasing deals recently. And you look at fee structures, so called a 5% acquisition fee, where they're making a giant chunk of their dollars on purchasing an asset. But I think an acquisition fee is fair, I think it should be in the two, three percent tops range versus a five, where that's just not aligned appropriately. Because if you look at it on a five percent acquisition fee, you're roughly raising anywhere between thirty-three and forty percent of the purchase price of the deal. So say you raise a third of the capital for a deal, say thirty million dollars, you raise ten million. Basically, on that ten million, you're then paying on a thirty million dollar deal one point five million dollars acquisition fee, which is a giant chunk of that ten million dollar raise. So it doesn't feel overly right when looking at a 15% of their capital being gone to an acquisition fee. Yeah. Just out of principle, I would not invest in that because they've made all their money up front. Yeah. They're disincentivized to really hit that waterfall return. I'd rather the, the syndicator make more money than the back end, where it's aligned where if they deliver big, they should get paid. I'm all for that, but it should be them getting paid for doing right by the investors because you really are a few share of their capital. These are people's hard-earned dollars you're putting to work, whether it's their retirement savings, whether it's commission checks being earned, whatever it may be. We all know how hard dollars are to make. They're trusting you with their future, their financial success there. That's a great point. Sam, can you tell me about your joint venture that you mentioned? It's actually a local deal. So it was 28 units in Lakeland, Florida, directly between Tampa and Orlando. Three of us, so actually myself and three others, put the deal together. I wish this was a deal I could have bought myself that the numbers on it are great. So we more so raise capital from a few folks to get the deal done. It's a value add play. So there's about a $300 delta between current and market rent. The goal is to go in there, non-renew all of the tenants, put in granite countertops, paint the walls, redo the parking, redo all the cabinets, rebrand the property as well. Just kind of give it a fresh facelift, re-tenant the entire property. And then from there, look at doing a refinance with the goal of getting the investors all their capital back in less than 18 months. And are all of the investors equal partners? No, they're not. So what we did was actually fairly similar. So it's a 6% preferred return, 70-30 split. And actually in this deal, the partners put in about 40% of the capital, which you never see. Another great question for syndicators is how much their own capital goes into the deal past acquisition fees. Great question. So how is this different than a syndication, this JV? The paperwork, it operates the same way when looking at the split to the investor. It wasn't a huge deal. So when looking at following a formal syndication, looking at twelve dollars to $15,000. A joint venture, we paid sub $2,000 for the legal paperwork. So for us, being a few share of the investors, it's saving about $1,000 to $1,200 per share of investment to the sponsors and the investors. So because of that route, we chose to make it a joint venture versus a syndication. 
Sam, from a compliance standpoint, is there a difference between existing relationships on syndications versus JVs? The way a joint venture works, it's similar to a 506C, where you have to have a pre-existing relationship with them. These were all close friends, family, et cetera, for this deal. All of our deals so far have been 506 and kind of plan to do that route going forward. Personally, I have a lot of connections of people who are up-and-coming software sales folks who are very close to that threshold, the accredited investor, where making $200,000 back back here in W2 or million-dollar net worth, where we can raise the capital we need for our deals without having to publicly advertise for it. So for us, we're not big enough yet to the point where we need to go do that. So how is us to raise capital from people who are close, but still deserve the right to have access to these kind of investments. And a lot of your software friends want to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, it's an interesting experience that being the one who manages a lot of your friends' money. So there's definitely an onus on you to do right by them as well. Absolutely. Sam, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Start young, start now, buy things as early as you possibly can and think really big. Like when I first started, I thought really small about it. I would have thought much bigger, much quicker. Great advice. Sam, are you ready for the lightning round? Do it. Let's do it. Sam, what's the best ever book you recently read? The Art of Winning and Losing. So it really goes into just how people think, how based on how someone grew up, how they think. Nothing really to do with sales or real estate, but more so it's the more you understand how people think and operate, the better off you'll be, moving them in the direction that you want to get them to. Sam, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I spent a lot of time coaching younger salespeople and also financial advice with a lot of my younger salespeople as well. So my previous company, we had 50 plus reps in my organization. And I spent a lot of time with financial literacy where you go through college, they teach you how to do a lot of things you'll never have to do. But I spent a lot of time working with them on thinking bigger and kind of working towards understanding the end in mind. That is great. Sam, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Best way to get in contact with me is on the website silvermancapital.co, really active on LinkedIn, Sam Silverman. And my cell phone number is 917-575-3523. Text me, call me, always around. Sam, thank you. You shared a great story where you started out in software sales and got into real estate and very quickly scaled and became a passive investing expert. And you're on your way to do great things. So thank you for sharing all of your tips with us. We've learned a lot about how to qualify operators and what to look for. So Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Best ever listeners, thank you. Have a best ever day.